0: Uh, scheduled for the, uh, Friday June the 8th at Cramden Park uh, bring snacks and bug spray uh, you'll see there also uh, June's social event uh, will be um, at the drive-in on US 23 uh, the sign-up sheet is on the helps board and we'd like to know so the can caravan and uh, get together in the same row that is Friday, June the 15th. Uh, you'll see it in the bulletin uh, and on the prayer chain for updates. Uh, so keep out uh, watch for that. The social planning group will meet at the Armstrongs June the 5th at 10.30 a.m. See Jess if you're interested in helping with that. So, All right, anything I've overlooked, missed? If not, our scripture for meditation is found in Acts, the 11th chapter, read 19 through 30. Acts 11, 19 through 30. Let's stand together and ask the Lord to be with us in our service. Dan, can I ask you to open today?
1: turn to page 92, number 9292 in the brown hymnal.
0: scripture reading this morning is Psalm 132.
2: (laughs) Let's stand as we read together. Psalm 132, verse 1. O Lord, remember David and all of the hardships he endured. He swore an oath to the Lord and made a vow to the Mighty One of Jacob. I will not enter my house or go to my bed. I will not allow my sleep. Uh, no, I will allow no sleep to my eyes, no slumber to my eyelids, till I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling for the Mighty One of Jacob. We heard it in Ephrathath. We came upon it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. May your priests be clothed with righteousness. May your saints sing for joy. For the sake of David, your servant. Do not reject your anointed one. The Lord swore an oath to David, a sure oath that he will not revoke. One of your own descendants I will place on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and the statutes I teach them, then their sons will sit on your throne forever and ever. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. I will bless her with abundant provisions. Her poor will I satisfy with food. I will clothe her priests with salvation, and her saints will ever sing for joy. Here I will make a horn grow for David and set up a lamp for my anointed one. I will clothe his enemies with shame, but the crown on his head will be resplendent. May God bless his word. Thank you. You want him to stand? Stay standing. Yep, stay stay standing.
1: standing. <laughs> cool. Take your brown hymnal again and turn to 189, 189 in the
2: brown. i
3: Our scripture text this morning is Psalm one thirty two. Let me just say that movie night on the social on on uh, that's coming up in June fifteenth. It's a kids film, uh, an animation film, so it's a good uh, time to be out with the family. We want to do something together, and. Um, I think it'll be an enjoyable evening. Last time we went bowling, we had 18 people bowling. Um, I didn't bowl, but I sat there and enjoyed watching it my hand. I didn't want to mess my hand up any more than it is from having having fold last um, May and, and injuring it. Uh, but it was fun just sitting there and watching people throw gutter balls. <laughs> and they, they have a cheat thing now. They have this rail that comes up along both sides of the, of the alley so that you don't throw gutter ball. <laughs> and that was great for the kids. So it was, a, it was a good evening. I hope you'll make an effort on that. Psalm 132 is our text. As we move along in our series, uh, Joy Unspeakable, we looked at two subjects so far. Number one, the definition of joy versus happiness, and there is a difference. And then secondly, uh, last time, the joy of life. We are the creatures of the creator God of the Bible. We're not subjects of evolution. We learned that Adam, by by the way, mankind, male and female, uh, was the crown of God's creation because male and female, Adam and Eve, were created in the image of God, and God used his own personage. Think about that as the mold from which to cast human beings. Unlike other forms of life, mankind has a soul that can and should relate to God. And we learn, of course, that Jesus is the exact image of God to which all believers are destined to be conformed. And that's referred to in Hebrew. Secondly, we looked at God as creator and Jesus as true representative of a sinless man, which is the basis for reconciliation. So when people disown God as creator, as did Nebuchadnezzar and Herod, or deny the unique characteristics of God, the fact that he's all-seeing, all-knowing, all-powerful, they cut themselves off from forgiveness of sin By sinning in the most basic of truths that we are not God, but subjects of God. The biggest problem that mankind has today is he thinks of himself as a little God. He doesn't need God. Not the God of the Bible. And it's creature madness to disallow God. To elevate oneself in that way. We look then lastly at the believer's joy in God as creator. Joy in knowing that God knows us. That's scary to some people, but it's not scary to me. I'm thankful he knows me. If he knows me, he knows all my inner workings, my thoughts even before they get to my tongue to speak and so forth. David said, boy, that's too wonderful for me, and it's wonderful for all believers. The joy of an ever-present God. It's comfort that no matter where we are, no matter where we go, God is with us. Some people like to run away from God, but the believer likes to run to God, and that's the difference. And then we looked at the joy of God's all-powerfulness. He created us in our mother's womb. He mapped out the days of our lives before any of them became a reality, and none of us dies prematurely. Uh, We die right on schedule, and if we know the Lord, we're absent from the body and present with the Lord, and that's the great promise that Christ has given to his people. Well, all that said, today's message deals with the joy of salvation, the joy of salvation. As we come, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Bless the truth to our hearts. As We talk about the serious matter of salvation. There's so much being said in our day about it. And when I think of it, a lot is being said, most of it being said, is untrue and misinformation. The religions of the world talk about earning salvation, doing this, doing that, praying a certain way, being involved in works of benevolence, uh, working one's way to heaven and salvation. Lord, help us to see the grace of it all given to us in Christ himself, that he might be glorified, not man, we pray in Jesus' name. We're looking at the subject today of the joy of salvation. The first thing I want us to note is God's advance warning. He does give warnings. At the creation of Adam and again of his wife Eve, God laid down one rule, one rule of conduct and one consequence if they disobey. Here it is. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Genesis 2, verse 16 and 17. This was extremely gracious on God's part. There are no surprises here. God did not keep Adam and Eve in the dark. He did not allow them to eat of the forbidden tree and then pounce upon them in judgment. No. The terms of their existence, the perimeters of their environment were carefully laid out. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. Boy, that's spacious, isn't it? But one. Every tree, but one. I don't see any deprivation here, do you? My goodness. They had plenty to eat. They had dozens of choices to provide variety and squash monotony. There was uh, no, oh no, not bananas again today. There was nothing like that. They could eat of anything they wanted. The variety was copious, every kind of fruit grew. In Eden's bountiful garden. Second. God not only laid down the law. And set the perimeters for obeying. But he proceeded to tell our first parents. The consequences should they choose. To disobey. Let me read it for you. But you must not eat from the tree. Of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it. You will surely Die. Genesis 2, verse 16 and 17. I was thinking about this. You know, every good teacher knows that it's not sufficient to lay down rules of conduct for their students. He or she, as a teacher, has to state what will happen to those who break the rules. Again, trying to avoid all surprises. Well, you never told me that. And at the same time, providing incentive to obey. Consequences are unpleasant. They're dire. But people need to know. And the Bible says to obey is better than sacrifice. First Samuel 15, verse 22. One thing is sure about God as creator and mankind as creature. There is no ambiguity in God's law and the penalties for breaking it. Same applies for God's true ministers. Paul says, Therefore, since through God's mercies we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Second Corinthians 4, the first three verses. And the context goes on to speak of how Satan blinds the minds of the unbelieving to prevent them from seeing and from believing. But it's not on God's part. He's making things very plain. This you must do. This you must trust the Lord. Well, that's exactly what occurred in Eden. There was no obscure instruction from God to Adam and Eve on the proper protocol for living as a creature of God in Eden. We could say it this way. Everything was crystal clear. (laughs) Crystal clear. Could not have been more clear. God, as it were, painted a big red X on the tree in the middle of the garden and in so doing proclaimed, Off limits! Danger! This tree and its fruit carries deadly consequences for you if you partake. Don't go there! Stay away! All you need to do thrive is plentifully supplied in the dozens and dozens of other trees found all over the remaining acreage of the garden. Well, Satan as a serpent came to Eve and he threw doubt and suspicion on God's word by first asking a question. Let me read it. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made and he said to the woman did God really say (laughs) you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Genesis 3 verse 1 do you see the subtlety there? When I was a kid growing up in Pennsylvania our town had the Susquehanna River flowing through, it still, it still does. <laughs> the Susquehanna River at that point was better than a quarter mile wide. It wasn't like this little stream up the street here that you call the Flint River. We kids learned to love the water. Swimming, fishing, all the amenities of a large body of water. But there was also the danger of deep water. There was also the danger of rapid current. Plus, poor swimmers on the part of the gang known as the River Rats. So my parents and those of some of the other kids laid down this rule. You are not to go to the river unsupervised by an adult. This was a reasonable and sane rule given the possible dangers involved. But what would happen? What would happen... If some clever yet rebellious kid came along who didn't much care about obeying parental rules, and he asked, well, did your parents say you were not to go near the river? Or did they say you were not to go near the water? Hmm. To our way of thinking, the river... In the water were one and the same, but there were other bodies of water elsewhere. Mountain streams, creeks, lakes, ponds. The changing of the word from river to water was designed to cause us to question the exact nature of the rule. I mean, if the word river was used, that's, that was plain enough. There was only one river in the town. But if mom and dad had used the word water, likely they didn't mean river, did they? Because no one ever said, let's go to the water for a swim. It was always, let's go to the river. One word changed. This was Satan to Eve. Did God really say? And you know what? It worked. Satan dangled the bait in front of Eve and she bit. Her words. But God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it. Well, really? Really? And you must not touch it, or you will die. Genesis 3, verse 3. Well, wait a minute. Where did this business of not touching the tree come from? Well, if you look at the original command, it's not from God. It's not in the original prohibition. Eve is extrapolating. She's drawing conclusions from her own thinking, all because Satan has caused her to doubt her understanding of the prohibition. And observe, as soon as Satan noticed that Eve had taken the bait, he set the hook with a bold direct yank on the fishing line. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Genesis 3, verse 4 and 5. What's he doing? Did God say, stay away from the river or from the water? That's what he's doing. Answer, well, I think it must have been water. Well, good then the river is fair game. That's the best place for swimming around here. <laughs> the creek is too shallow. And Eve reasoned, if the fruit from the tree in the midst of the guard will make me like God, then that's good. Because God cannot die. And so the serpent sunk the hook. You will not surely die. You see what's happened? Plant the doubt. Get her thinking the wrong way. And then make a bold statement that opposes the very word of God. Well, all that remained for Eve was to eat of the fruit, which she did. And we read, she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate it. Genesis 3, verse 6. What happened? Well, the clear command of God was twisted. It was tweaked. It was diluted to the point that our first parents ended up believing Satan's spin. Paul states the consequence. Sin entered the world through one man and death through that sin. And in this way, death came to all men because all sin. Romans 5, verse 12. And what happened? Well, God's curse happened. That's what happened. God's advanced warning came true. There was this advance warning, and Adam failed. But God did something else. He gave an advance promise of redemption. It appears, does it not, that Satan pulled off a tremendous coup that day in Eden with but a well-phrased question. He created enough uncertainty in Eve to question God and enough faith in his own words to get her to disobey what God had clearly prohibited. Paul puts it this way, For Adam was formed first and then he. and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. 1 Timothy 2, 13 and 4. This did not exonerate Adam, however. It only means that Eve was tricked into sinning, whereas Adam sinned with his eyes wide open. I think in him more culpability if you think about this. But a sinner by default or a sinner on purpose is still a sinner, doomed to death and destruction as part of the penalty. We might ask the question, well, couldn't God just, mm, couldn't he just change his mind about the penalty? No. The answer is no. God cannot change his mind. You say, wait a minute, wait a minute, Pastor. (laughs) Did I just hear you couple the concept cannot with God? God cannot change. I thought God can do anything he wants. Isn't that part of being God? Well, the basic truth is that all people, including God, can only act on the basis of their nature. What he or she is internally, which has to do with their upbringing, their education, their disposition, and so on, as we're talking about men. Sometimes we will hear someone make a statement about another person that goes something like this. Henry was fired from work today because he told off the boss to his face. I just couldn't believe it. I mean, he got all red in the face, he was shouting, he was waving his hands. That was so, so out of character for Henry. Well, obviously not. <laughs> Henry may generally have come across to others as a mild-mannered employee who normally just did his work quietly and without fanfare, but then no one was pushing his buttons to see how he would react in a situation where the boss was on his case for something he didn't do. And when the new occasion arose, Henry simply showed another side of his nature, one this time that cost him his job. God has a nature, too. But it's not a nature pattern after creatures, after man. Rather, it is a nature that in many ways is contrasted to man's nature. For example, Paul, in contrasting us with Jesus Christ, God's Son, states it this way. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. 2 Timothy 2.13 Well, we ask, can't men be faithful? Oh yeah, absolutely. Especially the believer whose new nature is patterned after Christ. But because of sin we can also be unfaithful. But that label can never be attached to God because God's nature is not subject to change. He's characterized by changelessness. That is part and parcel to God because he is perfect. To be subject to change, think about this, that's us. To be subject to change is to admit to not being perfect. I need a correction here or something has to happen here. We do not know everything there is to know, so we often change our minds. Even scientists with their theories, they change their theories because they discovered new things. We change our plans because something arises providentially that alters our decision. We change in physical health. Boy, I'm experiencing that. (laughs) We can't do all that we used to do when we were younger. We change in understanding. We change in knowledge because we are ever learning and sometimes we have to unlearn wrong concepts. We're changing all the time. But none of this can be said of God. He never goes through any kind of metamorphosis or change. Instead, his nature is eternally fixed, perfect. says he cannot disown himself. Of Jesus, the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Hebrews 13, verse 8. I want you to note the time references. Yesterday, the past. Today, the present. Forever, the future and beyond. Same, same, same. And brethren, it is the sameness that makes God's word, the Bible, the only reliable source of information to find God and to learn about him. Because God cannot change any threat we discover. You must not eat from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat you will surely die. That will come to pass if and when the conditions are met to breach God's rule. Well, Adam and Eve broke the rule. And no, no, God could not change his mind about the penalty. So we say, well, then Adam and all of his posterity are doomed. Adam the sinner passed on his sinful nature to us. And if we are sinners by nature, and we are, then there's nothing we can do to undo the legacy Adam has left us. And, what is more, God's judgment of death remains. The wages of sin is death, Romans six twenty three. Because God cannot change his mind. Can't ignore the penalty. That sounds pretty hopeless to me. It does sound hopeless. But it isn't. And it is not hopeless because along with God's advance warning of what would happen if Adam and Eve disobeyed this one rule of eating from the forbidden tree, God went on to give an advance promise of redemption. Genesis 3 verse 15, spoken to the lying serpent who assumed he had won a great coup in causing Adam and Eve to sin. I will put enmity between you, Mr. Serpent, and the woman. And between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head. You will strike his heel. Genesis 3, verse 15. And the he referred to is none other than the special seed of the woman of whom Paul writes, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, that is to sin, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also. Galatians 4, verses 4 through 7. You say, well, I I just don't get it. It certainly sounds like God changed his mind to me. I mean, in Adam, men die, but now we are told about God as Redeemer who apparently mitigates that death penalty. That sounds to me (coughs) like God changed his mind. Let me give you an illustration from history. In the days of Esther, under the rule of the Persian Empire, there was a wicked man named Haman. He was an Agagite. Agag was the king of the Amalekites. And so to call Haman an Agagite, he was a descendant of wicked King Agag. Well, what about this guy? Well, Haman hated the Jews, and he plotted successfully to get King Xerxes to sign this edict. Let me read it. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and little children, on a single day. And the day was listed, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, And to plunder their goods. Esther 3 verse 13. Haman was the author of this edict. But it was signed with the king's signature ring. And that done, the law could not be changed or revoked. According to Esther 8 verse 8. And you can compare Daniel 6 verse 12 where it's stated again seems to me to be a stupid rule, but it was a stupid rule, and there it was. The rule was that for men who make mistakes, they ought to be able to change their legislation. Anything that's been proved to be ruinous or harmful in nature should be able to change that. We're doing that all the time. But they had this rule. Well, how did King Xerxes keep Esther and her people from annihilation? Rules as rules as rules. Here's what he did. Now write another decree in the king's name on behalf of the Jews, as seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring. For no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be. Revoked. Well, we know that, so there's something going on. Esther 8, verse 8. Haman's edict, signed with the king's signet ring, doomed every Jew to death in the Persian Empire from India to Cush in all 120 provinces. One man's sin, Haman's, put the death curse on all. And Esther, through Mordecai, her cousin, issued a new edict saying, basically, here it is: the Jews had the right to arm themselves and to defend themselves on the day Haman's edict went into effect. And what happened? Tremendous victory. That's what happened. Tremendous victory for the Jews. And it's celebrated yearly. Every still celebrated yearly. In the winter and early spring of every year, it's called the Festival of Purim. Purim is the word used for the lot that was cast to determine the day that Haman was going to pronounce this death on all the people. But the Jews defended themselves because another law was given that said they could do that. Now back to Genesis and Adam's curse and penalty. Like King Xerxes, but far more on noble reasons. Namely, that God, because perfect, cannot change his mind. He did something to negate the curse of death. He did not say to Adam's posterity, well, defend yourself. Go ahead and save yourself. He didn't do that. That could never be. Because, as we have seen, we are by nature objects of wrath. Ephesians 2, verse 13. So God did something better. He sent a champion, he sent a redeemer who would go to war for us in our place and take our death and our hell personally. He would bear our sin and die our death on a cross in fulfillment of God's advanced promise of redemption. And this too is an edict that cannot be repealed or revoked. It's a glorious provision. And it's our only salvation. Yeah, you're under the curse of death, but there is a Savior that can deliver you from it. What then can we say of the recipients of the joy of salvation? Well, we are a spiritual people with a new nature. I mean, what good is it to have God send a Redeemer if we, by our sinful nature, cannot respond aright to the victor? Paul pointed the dilemma in these words We preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 23. Either way, the hearers are not capable to respond aright to the good news of the gospel. It trips them up. They can't see how one dying on a cross means redemption for the masses. Or it's just utter folly to them to fathom that the death of one man can produce life for many. This is not simply a stretch of faith. It's impossible to believe that. that's absolutely accurate. The good news of the gospel is not good news to the man on the street. He has no capacity to appreciate its message. He has no ability to apply its principles. He has no want to, no energy, no disposition towards acceptance, no appreciation for mercy, no love for God, no attraction to Jesus Christ. Negativity, yeah, that he has. But positive influence, no. Believing God's promise like believing this advance warning concerning sin is vital to a restored, forgiven relationship with God. But unbelief is part of our fallen nature. It is Adam's sin all over again with this distinction. Adam had a choice, but we don't. We don't come into our existence pristine and sinless as did Adam. No. We are unbelievers by nature. And God will never be important to us on our own. That's what we're wrestling with as we give the gospel or try to. To people who are unbelievers. So what happened? Jesus sent was sent as Redeemer. But he's no help to us because Satan, in the the form of a certain serpent, deceived. And his deception is more feasible to the way we think. John wrote this, Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the armor of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe. Because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he he has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and was speaking about him. John 12, 37 through 41. I can put it this way the would not is explained by the could not. They would not believe because they could not. God could supply the best solution to the curse of death, and he has. But if people will not believe him, if they won't apply his solution. The solution being Jesus. Then it's a moot point. (laughs) His promise is linked to faith. And the father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you. For you do not believe the one that he sent. You diligently study the scriptures because you think by them you will possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. John 5 verse 37 through 40. It's like an oasis in the desert heat. Refreshing, life-saving water is pooled there. But if Men see it only as a mirage and do not act upon it as being real. They'll die of thirst, just steps away from recovery. So what's the answer? Huh. God's made this provision, but mankind has an unbelieving heart. Skepti- skepticism is built into us. And, of course, you've got the devil there prodding right along with his evil suggestions. Well, the answer is God's electing grace. Surely, as the curse of sin has fallen on all mankind, the promise of life and victory falls on all who repent and trust God as God's Redeemer, who is Christ. Paul words it this way, the gift of God is like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification or salvation. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness, how much more will they reign in life? Through the one man, Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 16 and 17. What is Paul saying? He's saying this: Adam's one sin sentenced the race to judgment and condemnation, whereas those who receive God's grace and his gift of righteousness obtain eternal life through Jesus Christ. You say, what's the point? Well, those in Adam were all judged and condemned. Who's that? Every last man, woman, and child in Adam's descendants. Who's that? All of us. (laughs) All can trace our ancestry back to Adam. So too, those in Christ, who are they? Those represented by him. Those in Christ receive the gift of righteousness and eternal life. Well, who are they? Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of a human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. John 1, verse 12 and 13. Born of God. Who are those born of God? But whether we're talking about the physical or the spiritual, no one can conceive and then birth themselves. It just doesn't happen. Last week we heard David say to God, You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Psalm 139 verse 13. You did that, God. God and God alone gave physical substance to David's body from embryo to birth. Likewise, when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus about spiritual birth, he said to him, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Actually, the Greek word is born from above. John 3, verse 3. And Nicodemus postulated the question, Uh, How can a man be born when he's old? Surely he, he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. John 3 verse 4. Now you see, his question tells us that Nicodemus was thinking of birth in but one dimension. The physical. Jesus gave this correction. Flesh gives birth to flesh. You got that right, Nicodemus. But... The Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again or born from above. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone, here it is now, born of the Spirit. John 3, verse 6 through 8. I want you to observe in both scenarios, physical birth and spiritual birth, no one conceives him or herself. No one. We are the products of the actions of our parents, or in spiritual birth, the actions of God. Both unpredictable. Just as the wind blows where it wants to, so God's spirit breathes into dead souls his life as he sees fit. It's God's choice. Many are the recipients. Praise him. And what's the proof of spiritual life? The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news taught Jesus. Mark 1, verse 15. Or again, if you then... Though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Luke 11, verse 13. When people are saved, they pray all different kinds of prayers, but basically bores down to the same thing. They could say simply, Lord, save me. Or they could say, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. They could pray, Lord, grant me repentance. Lord, change my heart. Lord, work in me a miracle. They could say that, say it many different ways. But they are saying that repentance and faith are both the gifts of God to his chosen people, to those that ask. So the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore God again set a certain day, calling it, Today. When a long time after he spoke through David, as was said before, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, Hebrews 4, don't dismiss, don't miss out on God's promised new nature and the repentance and faith that characterizes it because of a failure on your part to respond aright right to God's voice of conviction and calling. I would say it this way, God doesn't prod everyone. God's speaking to your heart and he's convicting you of sin and drawing you to Christ. I want to tell you that's a blessing. You better capitalize on that. God's being gracious to you. Most people are thumbing their nose at God. Going on with their life. Thinking they can do so with impunity. God doesn't see. God doesn't care. God can't do anything about me. When you die, you just die. There's no afterlife. And on and on they go to rationalize their stupidity and their ignorance of God. The only place to find God is in his word. And he tells us what he is and what he will do. His decree is this. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life. For God's wrath, get it now, God's wrath remains on Him. See, if you're an unbeliever here this morning, you're already under the wrath of God. It's like a blanket over your life. And it'll stay there. It'll remain there. Until and unless you come to Jesus and plead for his mercy and grace. Do that, please. Why should you do that? Because God says in his word, my spirit will not always strive with man. You got a window here, God is saying. When my spirit is convicting you and he's striving with you, He's saying, wake up to the sin of your life. Wake up to salvation in Christ. You got this window. It's open for you right now. Today, it's a today window. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Why? Because tomorrow, maybe the window's going to close on you. Maybe tomorrow it will be my spirit will no longer strive with you you're not your savior God is the savior better walk through the window when he opens it our Lord we thank you for your word help us to see the sovereignty of your grace and how gracious you are if we're being convicted this morning even of our own sin Lord we need a savior I pray that you'll draw us don't let conviction just kind of lay there Help us to act upon it. Help us to cry out in the privacy of our own heart and mind, Oh God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Show yourself, Savior, to some person today. Not only for their good, but it will be for their good, but also for your glory, for you are glorified. If just one person, one, comes into your kingdom today, bless these truths to our heart. And for we who know you, help us to so hate sin because we see what it costs Christ to redeem us that we will renounce it and strive to live holy lives. Grant that to us. For your glory we pray this, but also we pray it for our good, for the good of all who will believe and be saved. Amen. Amen. Our closing hymn is from the hymnal number 471. 471 let's stand as we sing I like the first verse well the second one's great too well the third one's great too but I like the way he says this I must needs go home by the way of the cross I must needs It's kind of an old way of saying things but I just have to go that way is what he's saying there's no other way There aren't many roads to glory. There's one. It's Christ. (laughs) 471. truth, the life. No one comes before the Father except through me. Pretty exclusive, isn't it? Doesn't allow any other pathways. I alone am the way, the truth, and the life. That's in Christ. Come to Christ today. Amen. We're dismissed. Sorry, choir meeting is in the corner just from
1: that way. It's not children. Children's church meeting. Yes.